0: If you have your Bible this morning, you can begin pulling it out. We are headed to the book of Colossians, and we're in chapter 1 currently, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 15 through 23. In verses 15 through 23, these nine verses um, declare, and, and maybe one of the most beautiful ways in all of Scripture, the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's my personal opinion that that this passage that we're going to look at here this morning really is the apex of this entire letter that Paul wrote to the book, uh, wrote to the people of Colossians or Colossae, and uh, he writes the entire letter, and in particular this portion of the letter here in chapter 1, to encourage new believers in their young church plant in the city of Colossae to remain faithful based on who Jesus says that he is. And the reason that he wants to give them this encouragement is because they, like us, lived in a culture where there were many other voices that would take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of spirituality, but then twist the realities of the gospel and twist the realities of the New Testament into something else. And so Paul is saying, live your life and place your hope in Jesus based on who the Word of God says that he is, based on who Jesus himself promises to be. And so Paul will, for us this morning, lift high the name of Jesus Christ. So uh, let's stand this morning as we read God's word. I'm going to read to us verse 15 through 23, but let's stand together just in honor of Christ and in his word this morning. The Bible says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together and ask his blessing over his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are true and that you are filled with grace. And Lord, we look to you this morning, open our eyes afresh, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, lead us to your throne again this morning, we pray. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here Colossians and the author Paul writing the inspired word of God gives us two distinct ways that Jesus is supreme and out of those realities commands us to trust, to have faith in Jesus. The first we see in verses 15 through 17 is this, that Jesus is Lord and God over creation. Verse 15, the beginning, says that Jesus is supremely God, which is an incredibly important reality for them and for us. Paul writes it this way. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which if we stop for just a moment and and simmer on that, we consider that this immediately sounds like some sort of a paradox. How is it that Jesus could be the image of one who is unseeable? How can he be the invisible God and yet visible? Well, I'm glad you asked. 1 Timothy 1.17 confirms for us, as does many places in both Old and New Testament, that God is invisible. And yet, Paul here says that Jesus in the flesh is the visible image of the invisible God. The word image here in Greek in which it was written is the word icon, E-I-K-O-N, from which if you think really hard, you can figure out what English word we get. Icon, yes, I-C-O-N. And the word icon, E-I-K-O-N, back in Greek, is an incredibly rich word, and it's one that Paul chooses specifically for this occasion to help us just wrap our minds around the idea and the, re- the promise that Jesus is supremely God. Uh, Ralph Martin, in his commentary, uh, explains it further this way. He says, The really significant point to observe is that in ancient thought, Icon, E-I-K-O-N, was believed not only to be a plaster representation of the object so portrayed, but was thought in some way to participate in the substance of the object it symbolized. Image is not to be understood as a magnitude, which is alien to the reality and present only in the consciousness. It has a share in the reality, indeed it is the reality, thus Christ as God's image means that he is not a copy of God like him. He is the objectivization of God in human life, the projection of God on the canvas of our humanity and the embodiment of the divine in the world of men. I could have said that myself, but you know, Ralph does it better. Um, Hebrews the Bible puts it this way, Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Gospel of John at the very beginning says it this way, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word, capital W, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So if we go back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 33, this famous scene where God the Father says to Moses, No man can see my face and live. And that was a reality until the moment that Jesus comes to earth. In the moment of the incarnation of Jesus, when he arrives in the flesh, you can now see God face to face and live. Jesus is fully God and fully Lord, even if and when your culture says that he isn't. And that's important for them and it's important for us today. In the Colossians era of history, uh, there was an early heresy, an early cult religion known as Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of Gnosticism? That was one of the things that the Colossians were dealing with in their day. Gnostics taught that everything physical, everything created was automatically and inherently bad, evil. And only that which was spiritual was good. Good. So their line of thinking continued, God couldn't have possibly been involved in creation and couldn't possibly have a body. Instead, their theory went that that, God can't, that the world came into being by God making thousands of little emanations of God, thousands of little gods. I like to picture them maybe as like little yellow minions. Think, uh, think Despicable Me. Lots of little yellow minions who then went on to create the world. So therefore, Jesus wasn't God. He was just one of these many little minions. And Jesus couldn't have possibly taken on a human body because everything, again, physical, is evil. So, said the Gnostics, Jesus was only a ghost or a phantom. But the real heartbeat behind Gnosticism is this. The real message was just this. Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. In fact, if you want to get to God Jesus is just the first rung on a very long ladder, and you must ascend your way back to God. You must earn your way back to the real God. But here is the truth that Paul declares for us in God's holy and inerrant word this morning. Jesus is not one of a thousand little minions. Jesus is not baby God. He's not junior varsity God. He's not partially God, and he's not someday going to be a God. Jesus is God. He is the exact image and representation and the fullness of God, says verse 19, dwells in him. To put it another way, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In him we have all that we need. And then Paul takes this reality that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God and says that he is supreme over Creation, And you can see again why this would be such an important reality for the believers to understand when the world around them was denying this. And so Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now again here, you might first read this and think that Scripture is saying that Jesus was the first human being ever created, uh, which is exactly, by the way, what the modern false religion uh, Jehovah's Witnesses teach and believe. It's the precise thing that the heretic Arius taught in the third century. But to read it that way requires you to ignore the entire message that Paul here is writing in verses 15 through 23, and to ignore the entire message of the New Testament that explicitly says otherwise. So to be the firstborn can mean first child, if that is the context, like, hi, my name is Ben. I have a younger brother. I am the firstborn. Yes, it means firstborn. But here, as in many places of scripture, when it says firstborn, it means first in rank or first in honor. Take a look at an Old Testament example. This is Psalm eighty-nine, twenty-seven. The Bible says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is the firstborn over creation, and then Paul makes it explicit. He's saying Jesus is not a created thing. He's not a minion of God. Jesus is the creator, he says at the beginning of verse 16. By him, all things were created. So Jesus was there with the Father and with the Holy Spirit before and during and participated in the creation of the universe, Jesus made everything. Think about that for just a second. Jesus was there, and Jesus made everything. Everything spiritual, he made. Everything physical, he made. All seven days of creation, Jesus was there. Jesus made every throne that anyone might sit upon. Jesus made every angel, everything, he made it. And then Paul goes further. He says, Jesus is not only the author of creation, but Jesus is the, the goal. That Jesus is, uh, Jesus is, all things are created for him, says the second half of verse 16. That everything begins with Jesus, and everything will return to Jesus. In Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. But I especially love the way that it's written in Philippians chapter 2, where in verse 10 and 11, it says that, that one day, every knee will bow. And one day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Paul says that Jesus is the sustainer. He's the creator, and he's the sustainer. So Jesus didn't just make us and then leave us. And that actually speaks to another false belief that really began during the era of the, uh, the United States founding, which was the, the false God and the false notion of deism, which stated essentially, God is a clockmaker or a watchmaker. God made everything, and he, he started the clock, and then he walked away and said to all of creation, okay, now you take care of yourself. And nothing could be further from the truth. Paul says, Jesus is the sustainer of the universe, He is intricately sovereign over and personally connected to the smallest molecule and every corner of the universe. He is over having created and sustaining all of it. So what? What do I do with this? Well, Paul challenges and says, so put your faith and your trust in him alone. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he deserves all of our trust in him as scripture has revealed him to be lord and god over every corner of creation. You know, we, we see the same nonsense uh, regurgitated in our everyday lives in this culture as well. The same voices pop up and say Jesus isn't really this, Jesus isn't really that, the scripture's not really this, scripture's not really that. Um, the first of, the, of the, the ideas that we hear in our own cultures goes something like this, right? Jesus had a lot of good things to say, but he's not really God. Right? We've heard that conversation before? A lot of interesting things, spiritual guy, moral guy, but he's not really God. I offer to you the wise words of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Another one of the lies that we hear in our own culture, in our own day is, hey, Jesus is cool and all. But you've got to do it yourself. You've got to earn your way back to God. You've got to be a good moral person. It's up to you. And hear me clearly anyone who tells you that good works are the root rather than the fruit of salvation or anyone that tells you that salvation can be achieved by by your effort rather than the radical free grace of Jesus Christ on your behalf is speaking the same lies that Satan speaks who masquerades as an angel of light. That is why the false religions of our day are so attractive because they immediately speak to that heart that says, I don't need God's help, I can do it myself. Thirdly, we hear that in our own culture and day, we hear the, the voices of relativism or of tolerance, um, the, the well-meaning maybe at front, but when you dig down, you see what it really is, the language of coexist. Can't all the religions just get along together? Um, and that's the, that's the phrase that says, believe whatever you want to believe because always lead to heaven. Always lead to God. But beloved John 14, 6 says otherwise, doesn't it? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I don't know about you, but it, I, I take joy in joining with the endless choruses that will take place one day. I take joy now in in gladly bowing, bending my knee before King Jesus and lifting up my tongue to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God over all things. Amen. If there was a place to say amen, this is the place to say amen. Jesus is Lord. He's God. There is no second place. He's not baby God. He's not junior varsity God. And you do not have to earn your way to heaven because you can't and because Jesus has already made a way. And so, he gives my life meaning. He gives my life purpose. His instructions are my instructions. I'm not in charge. He's in charge. And I want to live my life the way that he has called me to live. I trust him. He's sovereign. He's Lord. He's God, not just of the universe, but I choose to say, Lord, you are my God. You're my Lord. Secondly, it's only. Two point sermon today, guys. Can you believe it? (laughs) That means it's going to be long. Jesus is Lord and God over the church. We see this play out beautifully in verses 18 through 23. Jesus is Lord and God over creation, and Jesus is Lord and God over the church. Verse 18 again. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. So here, Paul says beautifully that Jesus is supreme over the church and that he is, and because he is, Lord over life and death. Again, we get this phrase, firstborn. Firstborn, though, this time from the dead. Again, firstborn meaning first in rank, first in honor. Not that Jesus was chronologically the first to be raised from the dead. We know, we see in the New Testament that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And then we will see Jesus die on a bloody cross and be raised from the dead three days later. So the point is not that Christ is the first raised. The point is that if Christ is not raised, then none of us can or ever will be raised. Jesus' death on our behalf and Jesus' resurrection establishes that he has all power and he has made a way for us to join with him in his death and with him in his resurrection to new and eternal life. Jesus is sovereign Lord over salvation. He is Lord over the redeemed. He is Lord over the church. All of those who are identified here and in many places as one body, and he is the head of the church. Paul goes on in verses 19 through 22. For in him... Jesus is supreme in reconciling, alienated, hostile sinners like me and you and the rest of the world. Jesus is Lord over that as well. If we hear the solution, then we've got to understand the problem, and that is that every single member of humanity for all time, doesn't matter who you are, when you live, what you did, every single one of us since the fall of Adam and Eve is alienated, relationally separated from a holy and righteous God. Sin is a huge problem, and this too is something that our culture does not like to be reminded of. We'd much, matter, much rather think in terms of, look, look at all the good things that I've done, and I can do this my way, and I can accomplish this on my own. But God, without God the Father's reconciling grace through Christ, each one of us would be, and still is outside of his grace, hostile towards God. Enemies with God. Making ourselves enemies with God and relationally separated from God because of our sin. Get the picture here. This is the the angry child who is pushing himself or herself away from God. We are the one with the attitude problem. It is our sin, and we bring nothing to the table to solve it. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. As it is written, he's quoting the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Scripture says that we're not just alienated, we're not just enemies, we're not just hostile. It also tells us that spiritually speaking, we are in fact dead. What do dead people do? Very little. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so as we see the, the gargantuan nature of the problem, we ought to ask the question, well, then who can solve this if I cannot solve this? And the answer is the only one who can reconcile you to God is God. Jesus must be the one to do this for us. See, Jesus fully God in whom verse uh, 16 says, all the fullness of God dwells within has reconciled us in his body being fully human. Jesus, fully God, fully human. God always, by the way, initiates this relationship. God always moves first. God always is the the giver of the gift of grace in a saving relationship, and we always and only respond to what he has first graciously and kindly done. Among many verses we could look at, Romans 5, 8, and again, verse 10, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. From beginning to end, it is God's initiating grace and kindness to us, and it is our response to it. This is, again, God's sovereignty in all of salvation, and yet, at the same time, our human responsibility to believe, to respond. So you may ask, well, what must I believe? Or like Acts 16 says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers the question this way. At the beginning of verse 20 and then again at the, or at the end of 20 and the beginning of 22, he says that Jesus is supreme in the cross. Well, how so? Verse 20, verse 22 tell us that God the Father's method of reconciling sinners back to himself is Jesus on the cross. And if we step back and consider the fullness of verses 15 through 23, we see here that that Jesus, who is Lord of the cosmos, came down to earth to be nailed on an old, dirty, wooden Roman cross. Jesus would, through that, bring the greatest victory of all time through what was perhaps perceived in the moment to be the greatest defeat of all time. The invisible God came down from heaven and took on human flesh, entered our human experience, became a Jewish carpenter from backwoods Nazareth to reconcile the world to himself. And in the greatest exchange of of all time, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, he who had no sin took on all of our sin, and we sinners who will believe in him can receive in exchange his perfect righteousness." all of my guiltiness and all of my bad record placed on him and his cross, punishment paid, forgiveness purchased, and his perfect life applied, his perfect record applied to me. Don't believe me? 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is supreme in the cross, and Jesus is supreme. In restoration. Jesus reigns supreme in in restoration. We see this in verse 21 and again in verse 22. Colossians says that Jesus came to restore all things. Do you see the gargantuan nature of what Christ has come and has accomplished and continues to accomplish? He came to reconcile all things. So that means that creation itself will be fully restored one day. There was a moment with Adam and Eve in which paradise was lost, but there will be a day that we look ahead to when Christ returns where paradise will be restored. That this old busted city will become, says Revelation, a new city filled with believers praising God for all time minus sin and death and sadness and tears and destruction. And Christ has done 100% of the work already. His Good work is sufficient. And God here, says 2 Corinthians, is appealing to you. He is calling out to you. He is inviting you. And as a believer, I implore you, if you have never been reconciled to God, he makes his invitation to you this very day. Be reconciled to God. It's not out of your striving. It's not out of your social conscientiousness. It's not out of your good works or your good deeds. It's not a scale, do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds today? It's his grace and his mercy freely offered to you, and all you have to do is believe. Lord Jesus, I believe that who you say you are is who you really are, and I accept the free gift that you have offered to me. I don't want to be Lord anymore. I want you to be Lord over my life. And you can be restored. You can be made righteous, says the scripture. You can be justified before him and sanctified, meaning that God not only promises to save you, but in the remainder of this life, until the day that we see him in glory, God will sanctify you, meaning out of his grace again and mercy, he will continue to mold you more and more into the image Of Jesus. Not that you become a minion or or baby Jesus, but that you become a, a brother and sister in the family of God. Christ is the head. Christ is our brother. God, our Father, the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus' purpose here is to present you, says Paul, holy, without blemish, and free from every accusation. So believer, as you, as you stumble over the same sins over and over again, and there's frustration there, and there's, there's guilt, and there's shame, and Satan will accuse again and again and again. Jesus has solved all of those problems eternally for you already. And he will continue by his grace through his Holy Spirit, continue to work in you, to work out your salvation within you, he says. And not just to be at peace. Not, it's not that you're no longer enemies with God. You are. It's not that you sort of agree to disagree with God. No, no. It's that you've been invited into a new family. That you are co-heirs with Jesus of everything that the Father has for you. So again, I say to you, come to him. Trust In Jesus, as he has revealed himself to be as the son of God, as Lord and God over creation, and Lord and God over the church. Come to him. Remain in him in faith. The final verse of this passage, Paul says this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So seeker, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, let today be that day. If you've never repented and turned from your sin and turned to Jesus, let today be that day. Invite him to be Lord and God in your life. I'm going to lead us in prayer in just a minute. And if you never have and you would like to today, I will pray. And in in the quietness of your own heart, would you pray along with me and admit, confess that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus to save you from your sins and that he offers you new and eternal life. And if you pray that prayer today, would you just share that with somebody after the service so that they can walk with you and support you in this new relationship with Jesus? And believer, believer. You are walking with Jesus. You've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It means that you've been invited. You're a part of his body, the hands and the feet of Jesus, and he is the head of the church. You're a part of this local family, and you're a part of the the Capital C Church worldwide and universal, and it means that he is in charge of your life. Is he first in rank? Is he first in honor in your life? consider is is he first is Jesus first in your family, or is Jesus first in in your singleness is Jesus first in your dating relationships is Jesus first in your marriage and in your parenting is Jesus first in your education and in your career and your career aspirations and your plans for your life is Jesus first? In the human relationships that He has blessed you with, is Jesus first in our church? Is he first in our mission? and is he first in, in the ministries that we do? He sure ought to be? Is he first in our worship? And is he first on our lips when we engage people that we love and when we engage people that maybe frustrate us a little bit? Is Jesus first in our work? Is he first in our rest, in our, our recreation? Is Jesus first in our hearts? Where you failed this week? And I know you have, because I know I have. There is grace yet again. Look to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you convicted by your word, hopeless on our own, and filled with an unshakable hope and an unshakable faith because of what you, Jesus, have done, are doing, and will always do. Because of who you, Jesus, have been, are now, and will always be, Lord and God. And so, Father, we bow in our hearts. We bow on our knees before you. And, Lord, we confess that you are Lord, that you are God. So, Father, if we've never received you, never prayed that prayer before, never come before you in faith and in humility, Lord Jesus, we just come before you now and admit, Lord, I'm a sinner. done a lot of bad things. I try to keep them secret. I try to fix them, and it just doesn't work. Father, I recognize that my sin is a big deal. Would you forgive me? Thank you that you have made a way. Thank you that you have chosen to offer forgiveness. You didn't have to. Would you forgive me? I'm sorry for my sin, and I want to turn to you. I take my hands off the steering wheel, and I say, Lord, you're not only Lord of creation. I want you to be Lord of my life, and God, you know my heart, so you know that's going to be a struggle. So God, would you change my heart? Would you remove my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh? Would you change my faithlessness to faith? I trust you for all of it because you, Jesus, are God. Father, as believers, Lord, we're not perfect. We can't stand over anybody. We can't point any fingers and say, look, God, look how much better I am than that guy, than that girl. That's not how we come. We come with our eyes and our fingers pointed up to you, declaring, Lord Jesus, you are the best. You are the greatest. Everything that I have comes from you. On my own, I am nothing. And in you, I have everything that I need. Thank you, Father, that you have poured out your love. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son. Thank you, Son, that you have done for us what we could not and would not do ourselves. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here in us, that you have been sent by Jesus as another comforter to be with us, to strengthen us, that you've given us new life and new hearts that we can say no to sin and yes to obedience, that we can trust you. And Lord, would you help us to trust you? And Lord, would you make us ambassadors? Help us to share the same good news that we ourselves have experienced. Help us to share it with our words and with our lives with others. Lord Jesus, you're number one. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. You are holy. You are good. We pray this in your name. Amen.